0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to season two of the Academic Archer's Lockdown Saturday Omnibus Sessions. It's lovely to see you all here. And I've got to say a massive thank you for those of you that donated. It's really appreciated. It helps us keep this show on the road. It helps us with some plans that we've got for the conference for next year as well and news on the conference will be coming out very soon, if not later on today, in fact, if I can get my Excel spreadsheet to look beautiful and get all the costing sources. Um, And there'll be surprises along the way, surprises along the way in that conference planning as well. We've got a paper today from uh, Professor Carenza Lewis, and then we'll open into the chat as well. As ever, I'm gonna go over to Nicola to and
1: if you could unmute Nicola and if you want to say your hellos and maybe introduce Carenza. I oh hello peak 2020 Cara is a a van reversing just as you start your podcast (laughs) um hello everybody lovely to see everybody I'm really excited about this this week I think so I, I think possibly because there's no not the terror of doing my horse's paper which uh has been preoccupying me quite a lot, obviously, um, over the um, the lockdown. Um, well, we have been we're so lucky to have Professor Karenza Lewis, part of the uh, academic Archers uh, firmament. She is a star in our firmament. She was a major driver behind the Lincoln Conference, and is an initial OG presenter. She presented at the first ever Academic Archers and frankly it was prophetic because she sketched out what would a dig in Ambridge look like and where would it be and how would that all work. For those of you who haven't had the pleasure, Carenza is also a famous lady. She was on, spent a lot of her youth in trenches uh, on time team. so. Um, am I saying enough nice things, Carenza? Is this uh, is this the kind of the intro you wanted? Um, and we are delighted. The whole Brookfield storyline, I've been waiting to hear from Carenza about whether it was being done right or not. Uh, for me, there was a little bit too much flirting and a little bit too little talking about the coins. But you know, we'll uh, we'll go with that. So I commend. This is this is new work based on the on the paper from 2016 and um, Professor Carenza Lewis is the Professor of Understanding of um, of Public Engagement at the University of Lincoln. Over to you Carenza.
2: Okay thank you very much for that. I didn't mute myself but I think someone else muted me and then I didn't unmute myself um, and uh, like um, with the same problem with the environment and the van reversing uh, my room faces south and sun comes out has just come out uh, which means I'm dazzled. so I've had to rush around and deal with that um, so apologies for the coming and going thank you very much Nick for a lovely introduction a star in a firmament I think I'm going to quit while I'm ahead and just open it up for questions at that point <laughs> Uh, anyway, so what I'm going to do is try and uh, share my PowerPoint. Um, let's try and share the screen first. Um, right, is that working? Great. Okay, fantastic. Right, let's get this on to slideshow and get rid of that little bit. And from beginning. Okay, right, have you got the first slide saying the Brookfield dig finds? Okay, great. Um, So, what I'm going to talk about is what's been known as the Brookfield Dig, and I have to say, um, I think it was Academic Arts just where I first heard about this, because I'm another omnibus girl, and so I don't listen to it during the week, um, and didn't know anything about the archaeology appearing, and then people started posting messages saying, what about the archaeology, should ask Carenza about the archaeology, and I'm like, I know nothing, (laughs) I didn't know this had happened. Um, So I must admit, over the last uh, month or so, I have been occasionally listening during the week, which is is very unusual for me, or having to listen on Sprint to catch up. But what I thought I'd do is just quickly go through what the are, uh, what they mean, um, and a little bit about what the script writers might do with the story. And uh, if people want to talk about that, I appreciate Alice is taking up most of the oxygen in um, uh, Ambridge fans' worlds at the moment. Um, but there's uh, sort of thoughts about what they might do with the story. And I have been in touch with one of the script writers who hasn't actually asked me to help yet, but has said he'll kept me, keep me in reserve. I think he's just being nice, actually. But um, anyway, we shall see. Um, so what are they? Um, we've heard comments about uh, the uh, thrymses and the other coin. Um, and uh, so this is what a thrymsa looks like. I'm just gonna give a little side picture here so I can see what you're seeing. So, um, they are gold coins, so they are quite nice. Um, this is one from Gloucestershire. Um, I should say, both of these coins are really uncommon in this part of England. Um, so, if you go on the Portable Antiquities Scheme website, which is open to public uh, view, and search on Forenza. There's only about 77 come up and I did a tally of the numbers and looking in the area around where Ambridge might be. Um, There's one of them has come from Warwickshire. There's one from Worcestershire. Um, So, you know, whereas there are 10 or 15 from counties like Essex and Suffolk and so on. So they're pretty uncommon. But they're quite cool. I'll like give you a close-up there, because they are rather nice. Um, and you can see there's a sort of rudimentary picture of a king's head. Uh, the little thing at the right-hand side might might, might it suggest it might be some sort of staff of office. It looks like the thing you put candles on in a church sort of thing. Um, and then there's just a sort of bit design on the back. And some kind of rudimentary letters. And if you're thinking you're finding it difficult to read that lettering, it's because the... Coins aren't really being made in a literate society. They're kind of just approximating what earlier coins look like. And the Thrimsa is based on the, it's a kind of third of a gold coin. There's a Tremis called uh, a Roman coin called the Tremis. And this is a kind of derivative of it. So they're kind of copying early ideas. As you can see, dates to about 645 to 60 AD. The other coins that have come up um, are called either, depending on uh, how you pronounce them, skeets, um, which is uh, the nice way of calling it. Um, the other term that they're generally used is with a soft C, in which case, if you've got lots of them, they're called shatters. Um, one of them is then, of course, called a shat. And you can understand why there was a little bit of uh, hesitation in Ruth when she's just reading out the thing. She's saying it was a thrim. I don't know how you pronounce it, it's a thrimzer. Now, I think Frimza is just as difficult to pronounce as something that's written down saying ski, but there's this kind of hesitation when she's trying to pronounce it, because obviously they don't really want to say a shout on the radio. And apologies for anyone of the delicate sensitivity um, that I didn't pre-warn you about that word. But of course, it's merely an Anglo-Saxon word for coin. There must have been some brilliant jokes in the anglo-saxon period one suspects about um the names because uh, the uh, slightly more four-letter version of that is definitely an anglo-saxon word of origin and the anglo-saxons were very into puns as well so you can just imagine some of the jokes again that dates about 690 to 710 so it's kind of late 600s um but they're tiny they're really small if you look back at the scale you can see you've got a centimeter there so they're a centimeter across they're about the size of your thumbnail um, so I must admit, I think Jill must have bloody good eyesight because not only are they tiny, but they're in a muddy field. To be able to spot those, um, you know, is, is remarkable. Um, she must be absolutely bent double um, over that field, being able to get close enough to see that. Um, nonetheless, it was glinting in the sun, I guess. Of course, they're going to be covered with mud as well. Um, so where are they? Now it gets referred to as the Brookfield Dig. Um, but actually, all the talk about metal detecting has been about metal detecting the Romanis. Um, and I keep losing my titles at the top here. So where are they from? So this is the uh, authorised map of Ambridge. This is the, well, I'll, I'll show it to you later. I've got a copy of the fold-out map here um, showing Ambridge. And the uh, uh, bull is kind of uh, in the middle here. Um, and this is the central green. St. Stevens is down here. Um uh Brookfield is circled in red there, um, but Marnie's is up here. So Marnie's in quite a different place. It's on the north side of the stream, uh, the, the Am, the River Am, um, on a south-facing sort of lowish, lower line sort of terrace just above a river. And if you remember uh then uh, being interviewed in the um in, in the radio in, in um that ill-fated uh, radio interview with Susan. Um, he's asked about. Oh, is it significant that it's on the on the low terrace near the river? You know, Professor. Um, you know, the Professor said so. Um, and. It's clearly exactly right, based exactly where it is. And really Ben should have known this was significant um, because um, it's exactly the sort of place where you get these sorts of uh, these sorts of sites, sort of settlement sites, south facing land, uh, gets more of the sun, good water supply, uh, sort of just at the bottom of a hill usually. So Marnie's, what do we know about its history? Well, the obvious place to go to to have a look is the Ambridge, uh, an English village through the ages written by Jennifer Aldridge and John Trugaren. Um, So I had a look through that for Marnie's. Um, absolutely, virtually nothing about it at all. Surprise, surprise. Um, it's not referred to in the Doomsday book. There's the uh, Doomsday book entry for um at Ambridge, but it doesn't include Marnies, which suggests that uh, Ambridge is just the kind of umbrella name, the portmanteau name for lots of little different land holdings around the Ambridge area. That's kind of how Doomsday Book works. Um, the only mention in the whole of this book is one will in 1557 talking about Thomas Marnie of Ambridge as he's called and he's only referenced as a side person um, because he um, uh, uh, somebody uh, one of the other families in Ambridge the blowers who actually never get mentioned these days but in this book they keep talking about the blowers as being a family as old as the the Gabriels for example Um, but one of the blower family owes Thomas Marnie money and he refers to this in this will. Significant thing for the point here, though, uh, that he has two daughters. He leaves most of his goods to his brother, so we could infer from that that the uh, family name, the Ambridge Marnie family name, must have died up, died out with Thomas's death because he only left daughters. Um, we'd also infer that that Marnie surname comes from the place because that's how. Surnames developed in the medieval period. Um, uh, so you've got um, you either get your name from your your father, so like Thomas's son, it's Thompson, um, or you get it from uh, you know where you live. So if your name's John Bridge, it's because you used used to live near the bridge. So and a lot of surnames are locative. Um, so uh, you know if your surname's Dalton, it's because Way back, your family came from Dalton. So Abraham Lincoln's family probably came from Lincoln, which is where I live now. Um, so the Marnie family probably got their name because they were living at somewhere called Marnie's. So what's that place name mean, I then thought. Uh, so you can go to the English place name. The site At the University of Nottingham holds this. There's no place called Marnie. There's some with similar elements. So there's this Martin here, making the point that the um, Ma element might be to do a word for a pool or a, um, uh, a lake, which sort of might work. Uh, there's another place, uh, mani which has got the EA, the E bit of Mani, um, and that's talking about E as a word for island. And that's really common. Um, so Ely, for example, is Isle of the Eels. If you've got that E, E E-A or E-Y element, that's island. So that works with Marnie's sort of little island, sort of with the river curving around it. It's a bit of raised ground that's dry above surrounding sort of wet area. And then there's Manningham. And this was interesting um, because it actually refers to the idea of it being a place name. Um, So there you've got the map element at the beginning, which suggests here it's uh, related to uh, Megan. Often with place names, the way they evolve, it's the farm or the homestead or the island of somebody. So it's a bit like when you were little and you talk talk about going over to, you know, at Susan's house or Jennifer's house. Um, you know, you tend to refer to places by the person. So in that case, um, could there have been a name like that for Marnies? Now, I've just put this in as notes, so I'm going to skip over this text a bit, which is just to remind me really. But actually there is, and this is historically real, okay? So all the stuff about is Ambridge, yeah, might or might not be real. I wouldn't want to uh, disappoint anybody who uh, is living in the uh, fundamentals Ambridge world. Um, but real history, uh, after the end of the Roman period, England collapses into a load of smaller kingdoms. One of them is the kingdom of the Mangan Cittai, um, approximating to modern Herefordshire. Now that's not exactly where Ambridge might be, but it's not that far. Uh, capital, Kenchester, the old Roman site, just west of Hereford. Now we know three Magal- city rulers, uh, Merwalch, Merchelm, and Milfrith. Um, as you can see, those dates, 685 late 600s. So we've now got uh, people named at the same time, and we've also got names beginning M-E-R. So that kind of doesn't take very much corruption in spelling and pronunciation over the centuries, for that to be the Ma, give you the Ma element of Marne. So you've got the sort of Maan and then you've got the E. So it's the island of Merhwalt or Merham or Milfrith We know nothing more about these kingdom or kingdoms. They're probably absorbed into Mercia in the eighth century and certainly the Ambridge area, that sort of Warwickshire, Worcestershire is in Mercia. And this all comes from the source here, as you can see, the Biographical Dictionary of Dark Age Britain. Um, so that's reasonably kosher history. Um, And what's interesting, because of course, I think this is probably a sheer fluke, but actually those rulers' dates are exactly the same as those coins. So maybe this chap on this coin, I don't think it's a picture of uh, Mervoch, but it might be a picture of one of the rulers. Anyhow, so that's a bit of background history. Archaeology. Now, this... There's really, when you look at the conventional map of Ambridge, here it is again. Uh, There's a load of sites, there's some burial mounds, there's a Roman settlement, there's a couple of deserted villages, uh, and there's a Roman road. And I've shown those all in green. Nothing around Marnies at all. Well, there wasn't until um, we had a look at this when I gave my original paper, which Nick's already very kindly referred to, um, back in 2016. a paper called Dig the Archers, really talking about community archeology span in places in Anbridge. And it was based um, on work that I'd done a lot of doing excavations, small one meter square excavations in uh, villages of possible medieval origin. And I speculated in the paper about who might I get involved. So we've got Jim Lloyd, obviously known interest in history. Uh, we've got uh, Carol Trigoran, um, Linda Snell, Jennifer Aldridge, The kind of usual suspects who you'd expect either to be interested in the history, as we know Jennifer Aldridge is for that book. um, Or, uh, and Carol Tregoran, in fact, was involved in a a field walking project as well with Schuler, I think, um, some years ago. There was a reference to that once. Uh, Linda Snell, of course, always wants to be involved in everything, or did until the accident, of course, and this paper was way before that. Uh, We didn't have Ben Archer in as somebody involved in the archaeology at all then, probably because he was only about 12 at that point. Um, Anyway, what we did with this was identify a number of sites that people might have dug in. These test pits with the idea that you want to get 50 of these metre squares across the whole village. And then like a jigsaw puzzle, you can kind of map what went on where and when from the finds. And at number 33, as you can see, there's Marnie's as part of Brookfield and Marneys has been part of the Brookfield sort of farm estate for decades now. Um, so Marnies is in that and number 33. We then went through what the finds might be based on sort of archaeology that we've done uh, uh, in other sorts of villages that are a bit like Ambridge again looking particularly at places like Grange Farm, Ambridge Fruit View and so on um, with a load of Possible uh, yeah, you know, funny finds because you get stuff like bicycles and pairs of buttocks turning up, and then you get bits of medieval floor tile uh, and old flint and so on. So we then back So here's all the test bits. Um, you can see where St. Stephen's is. You can see again, you've got Marnie's on that point just at the foot of the hill. The green colour is the slightly higher ground, with of course Lakey Hill and the Bronze Age barrows up at the top. Um, and then you've got the sort of river, uh, valley, as it were, is in the lighter green, and obviously the river's marked in the green. So what's turning up? So prehistoric. Now, for all of these, if it's just a white square, uh, that's where there's just been one of these pits with no finds in it. But if it's a blue circle, there have been finds and the bigger the circle, the more finds. So nothing a prehistoric date. Um, Tiny little bit of pottery in the Roman period, um, but the Roman settlements are kind of slightly different places. Uh, nothing in the early Anglo Saxon, so this is 450 to 650 AD. Um, but hey, look, in, when you get into the later Anglo Saxons, so that's AD 650 to 1066. We've got a little bit of pottery from Test Pit 33 at uh, Marnie's. Um, and again, it's only a small bit, less than five grams. There's very little pottery in use in this part of uh, England at this period. And so even one tiny bit suggests there's something going on there at that time. So I, I'm delighted to discover we, we picked this up. I haven't even done the stuff on the place names at the time. <laughs> um, so uh, late Anglo-Saxon, uh, into the high medieval. This grows into a, a whole settlement. You can see there's a lot of pottery there. In fact, Marnes is one of the bigger uh, places, actually much bigger, in fact, really than the centre of Ambridge as it is now, which was probably quite a dispersed, scattered around place. So we've got lots of pottery in the high medieval period. Um, uh, and then what happens, this is the period up to 1348. which might sound a bit of a precise date, but of course that's the date of the Black Death. Um, which I'd done a lot of work on at that time. It's become very fashionable these days, because pandemics. Sadly, um, so that's in the run up to Black Death, and then after the Black Death, nothing. Um, so the place is complete deserted. There's no pottery. Um, it's uh, possibly also another deserted settlement nearby, already known. Um, so that's up to 1550, and then from 1550 to 1800 the farm comes back into use and I again I didn't know about Thomas Marnie at the time uh, but there we are there's that 1570 uh, Thomas at Marnie um, actually showing up in the pottery there and then into the Victorian period tends to be lots of pottery from that date all over the place because uh, there's lots of pottery in use so yeah um we picked this up. Now, maybe the script writers have read um, the fantastic book that uh, Cara and Nick and Peter Matthews edited, Archers in Fact and Fiction, and have uh, developed this uh, storyline on the basis of that. So now, what do these finds mean? Now, there's the Brookfield dig, people talking about Brookfield hoard and all that sort of thing. In fact, I think the first time I heard of it, somebody tweeting about it, it was talking about the Brookfield hoard. I was oh my God, what are they saying they have found? Um, Of course, they're not too far here from the Staffordshire Hoard, which is uh, a picture of that here. Um, But actually, the Staffordshire Hoard is completely different. It's uh, unique. Um, uh, It's a whole load of military equipment. Mostly there's no female-related stuff. It's amazingly beautiful stuff, and and, and it really is worth, worth a trip to. Uh, sort of Birmingham, to go and have a look at the finds in the Birmingham Art Gallery, um, just just to be amazed to look at it, stunning, um, beautiful red and gold, um, red garnets, gold inlay detail, but this is not what we've got at Brookfield at all, because actually um, there's thousands of items in the um, Staffordshire Hoard, um, but no coins, Um, And of course, what we've got at Brookfield is uh, these coins. Um, Now, we don't know much else about what has turned up. They obviously had the uh, students came up uh, with... um, somebody who I think was their supervisor or their lecturer it wasn't made entirely she was the person in charge who kind of knew a bit more about it they were saying that she knew so much um not much of which they actually told us of course um but uh, they had a supervisor with them they did the field walking we haven't heard that they found anything they keep saying oh they haven't found anything Ruth keeps referring to that well, they found nothing um but they've gone away to think about their results now um, In terms of what should they have done, I was very pleased to hear very soon there was a reference to the Portable Antiquities Scheme that Jill was filling in the paperwork for the Portable Antiquities Scheme. Uh, Ruth was relieved that um, uh, she didn't have to do it because Jill was doing it. Um, By law, any any collection of more than a couple of items or items that are more than 10% silver or gold have to be reported as treasure and these uh, three items fall into uh, the treasure category for both of those there's three of them together um and um they're more than 10 percent silver or gold um so they should have been reported as treasure and they have been so that's great and there was a nice name check from portable antiquity scheme and of course that's where i got these images from their website um they did some field walking Uh, to be honest i'm not surprised they didn't find much because as i said before there's very little pottery in use in this part of the country at this time even if they had been in eastern england where there is more pottery in use you'd still tend to get very little on sites of this sort of late 7th century date um, so I'm not surprised they didn't find a great deal. What they really should have done, um, and we had a site like this turned up recently on land the University of Lincoln owns, where we had a large hoard of 220, very late Iron Age, just pre-Roman conquest finds, um, turned up altogether as a hoard. Um, we did get a metal detectorist to come across, or two metal detectorists to come across and survey the whole site because what you really need to do is find out if there's any more metalwork. because it very quickly, a site like this, gets vulnerable to being night And we've had a storyline developing about this, about the idea of people coming and digging holes. Now, it's not entirely clear at the moment, I don't think, whether all of those holes have been dug by Eddie or whether there really is somebody else coming and trying to dig stuff up to find uh, precious stuff. And obviously, if you find a whole load of gold coins, it can be worth thousands of pounds. Um, mostly you tend to find a load of old rubbish or one or two coins a couple of the the skeets like that are not going to be very uh, worth very much Um, so really I think I'd have done a metal detecting survey I'd have got you know really good metal detectorists that come in and scan the whole area and just you can set your metal detector just to pick up gold and silver and just to check that there's nothing else there because what you what you want to do is you want to be able to find it so it can get recorded properly rather than just being sort of hived off and sold off on the black market so eddie's actually right about that the idea of him doing some work across that uh, and uh, picking everything up I, i'm not I think he's right for the wrong reasons. Obviously, he just wants to get the loot. But if he's doing it with David's permission, he should be reporting that and we should all find out about it. So, what's actually likely to be there? Now, it's probably not a hoard. Anglo Saxon coin hoards, again, are really uncommon very rarely get them. When they were first saying was a load of coins um, and the gold one, the silver one, I thought they were going to be either late Iron Age or Roman. So Roman coin horse are not that uncommon. That would be the obvious most typical date, but they're not, they're that much later than that, that sort of late 600s. Um, Looking, you know, when you look through the literature, generally these sorts of coins do turn up kind of scattered across settlement sites. But generally, if they're turning up, they tend to get, they tend to turn up from rather special settlement sites. Uh, These are sites which tend to turn up quite a lot of nice stuff. Um, uh, They used to be called, well, sometimes they're thought of as monasteries, so you sometimes find uh, little styli, which are writing implements, or little um, bits of book corners, book clasps. now the brilliant term that people use for these sorts of sites that turn up a lot of stuff from the sort of period we're talking about here is productive sites which makes them sound like a nasty cough um uh, they simply means it produces a lot of things and archaeologists are trying to avoid you know giving it a a judgmental term that suggests they know what it is um, but they don't tend to look glorious when you dig them. So on the left-hand side here, this is Flicksborough in Lincolnshire, a productive site uh, that turned up a few skeets, no um, and But there's lots of buildings, there's lots of finds, there's glass, Anglo-Saxon glass, probably made from reused Roman glass, um, and spoons, silver spoons and so on, you know, really nice objects. But the sites don't look particularly fantastic. The other possibility is they may, come, may have come from a burial, um, and that's entirely possible. They could easily, I mean, there will be, an anglo-saxon burial site somewhere in ambridge they just will because people were living there and therefore they're dying there and people are being buried in the ground rather than sort of being cremated or um perhaps having the ashes put in the river which we suspect might be happening in the roman period so we don't find uh, sorry in the iron age period so we don't find burials in the iron age period it went on for 800 years so there must have been some people died in that time we don't really find burials very often but in the Anglo Saxon period, people were being buried in the ground, some cremated and placed in pots, some cremated and just put in little handfuls of ashes in the ground, which are pretty difficult to detect archaeologically, but others buried uh, uh, as uh, inhumations as entire skeletons, as you can see here. Don't tend to find huge numbers of. Uh, coins, frimses or skeets with um, uh, burials, but occasionally they do come up. Mostly though, we just find them, they get reported because they've been found by metal detectorists in the plough soil just like Jill found them with no context at all and there's just that sort of fe- seems to that feeling that either they're being put in burials that have been disturbed and ploughed up or the odd ones getting lost across a settlement um, and you know just kind of turns up we don't tend to find them in features they don't tend to turn up in ditches or post holes or anywhere deliberate uh, they're sometimes in layers of black earth that cover a lot of these settlement sites and suggest there's a lot of A lot of stuff going on, the earth's black because there's lots of organic material in it. So it's um, rotted down, um, you know, vegetation and rotted down foodstuffs and um, sewage. Um, But we don't find much in the way of features. And you find these coins occasionally. Um, so we've probably got a settlement of some description uh, there, possibly quite an important one, um, and there's almost certainly a cemetery nearby somewhere. Um, it's possible that a slightly earlier generation the settlement was actually up at Lakey Hill, because the Anglo-Saxons often buried their dead around pre-existing burial mounds, so there may be some Anglo-Saxon burials up at Lakey Hill. So, Ambridge Horde. Um, uh, so, looking at Flixborough, um, there was a hoard from Flixborough, and I'm just saying this so that Eddie doesn't, because I mean, this would be a great storyline. Um, so, there was a um, horde at Flixborough, um, sort of referred to as a horde. But when archaeologists who are inclined to put the boring interpretation on anything uh, talk about hoard, they just mean a load of stuff together. Whereas, of course, when the rest of us perhaps, you know, I'm an archaeologist obviously, um, you know, think of hoard, we tend to think of, you know, gold and silver and precious things. Uh, the the of flex was buried in this little lead tank here. Um, but actually, the contents were a load of woodworking tools. Um, you know, woodworkers are really important at that time. If you've ever seen Lord of the Rings and seen um, uh, Rohan, you've got that, you know, it's, it's a very good idea, Rohan, of what, um, uh, what um, a an Anglo Saxon settlement would look like big timber halls or nate carving, uh, beautiful wood carving, but actually doesn't survive very well archaeologically because of wood rots. So this ambridge horn, it would have looked like a load of stuff like this. Um, not quite as exciting as I suspect what Fred, uh, what Eddie's hoping he's going to find. So then where would this, where could the story go? Now, uh, um, uh, Clem Cooper, who was my co-conspirator on the original paper back in 2016, uh, uh, tweeted last night saying, oh, so many uh, places this story could go. They've got the Port of Antiquity. We've got uh, that Port of Antiquity scheme, the whole sort of question about why you record stuff. University archaeology courses. Uh, we've got field walking, which has been done. Numismatics, what you can tell from coins, where they turn up. Night hawking, that sort of coming onto sites at night—and people will sometimes, you know, come onto sites at night with guns and dogs to frighten off anyone who tells them to go away. And of course, Marnie's vulnerable because it's a little bit on its own. Um, I'd I'd love them to do a community dig. This is what our original paper was about in 2016. Um, And it has huge potential in many ways. So you could have this that went on for several years, it'd be sort of almost like the the summer festival every summer they'd come back and dig a bit more. a great opportunity to bring new characters in and if you get bored of them to get rid of characters, you get people who come from just one season, you've got lots of opportunity for bringing young people in, the students, we've already seen you know, the beautiful Evie, I think she's called and she um, has, has already appeared, so you've got a lot of scope for that sense, so it's almost like average having its own festival, you've got a lot of humorous storylines about stuff turning up and being found and discovered and misinterpreted and you've got the drama of things going missing or uh, the, the conversation between the different characters as to what's been found you've got the sort of thing of who'd organize it you have to have professional archaeologists in to do the overall supervision but you can, you can imagine the sort of conflict about who's going to be in charge of it you've got a whole Jim Lloyd storyline coming out there um, who take credit again you've got the opportunity for lots of quite light-hearted humorous but nonetheless sort of interesting stories because it would pick up history and could pick up stuff from the past that people will be able to refer back which would be great for sort of listening um it could almost become the new xmas panto And they seem to you know we've had an xmas panto every year for as long as i can remember at ambridge and you know clearly they're trying something different this year you've almost got this community dig um, everyone would get involved one way or another you know, people's different characters eddie just hacking away to get everything he can you'd have uh, you know Jim would be incredibly meticulous so I think there's a brilliant scope for a community dig story to come out of this Um, at the moment of course all Eddie says he's found is a load of ring pulls and there's a ring pull here that we found on an archaeological site so they do turn up Uh, but of course the trouble that Eddie needs to get a better quality metal detector he should be able to screen that sort of thing out anyway so that's a little bit of background on the average dig or of course the Marnie's dig let's say. So, um, I'll open that up for questions.
1: That is absolutely wonderful. Thank that you so fantastic. much.
0: Absolutely fantastic. Thank you.
1: So, there is one immediately in the chat. Um, why no pottery at this point? Were they eating out of wooden bowls, do you think?
0: Yeah,
2: the suggestion is this is a really, um, uh, really common thing. Sorry, I just managed to completely lose um, my screen and be able to see anybody, not that it really matters. But, um. Okay,
0: I can sort that out. Oh, was- I've got a kitchen on my lap. Who's <laughs> getting in my way of getting to the actual <laughs> screen? <laughs> okay, darling, you
2: can die. Nice. Oh, right. oh, brilliant okay i don't know why it helps to see people um, yeah why, why no pottery um we don't really know there's a suggestion in the roman period pottery is kind of mass produced for the market so you've got people who are professional potters and are selling pots in the market and people buying them um and there's a suggestion that that sort of the knowledge of that skill just gets lost in the kind of whole socio-economic political turmoil at the end of the roman period um so people stop you know, on the whole stop living in stone built buildings. We don't get mosaics anymore. You know, those Roman central heating systems disappear. So it's a suggestion, there's just that less lack of technical knowledge, loss of technical knowledge, It may just have been a cultural thing, though. You get um, populations coming in from sort of uh, the continent, from uh, northern Germany, northern France, those sorts of areas where, um, particularly in Germany, which have been outside the most, which is outside the Roman Empire and and from Scandinavia, uh, you've got communities that traditionally haven't used pottery very much because Um, they didn't have much clay (laughs) so they didn't have the raw materials there so um, so it may just have been a cultural preference and yep they'd have been using bowls made of wood Um, they'd been using sort of drink containers made of leather just everything's made of organic stuff which is occasionally you get waterlogged sites if you get a well or a ditch or something like that that's got water at the bottom or you know very wet deposits um Organic material like leather and so on survives, um, but otherwise it just rots away and we don't find it. So that's the picture I showed you at the site. You know, it does look that boring, you know, because there's kind of nothing really much there. Mm.
1: Another question, a technical one about um, metal detectors. I'm sure that's not part of your kit for a proper dig, but it would be needed for the community one. Which is how would Eddie's, how could he upgrade, and what would it? Do, how would it not find the wrinkles?
2: Well, again, I'm not an expert on this sort of thing. And actually, we often do have them on archaeological sites to be quite useful actually to sort of scan a feature just to check what's what's going to come up generally though if you're um you know if you're traveling a feature you'll pick up any um metal finds anyway Um, there are um all sorts of and I, i just don't know the physics well enough but there are all sorts of because what you're effectively doing is picking up those magnetic signals and those signals are different so different metals give off different signals so they've got different elements in them so you can actually screen out those different sorts of, um, those, those signals from the sort of base metals. So it used to be a strategy where if you had a site where people worried about it getting metal, detect- raided by metal detectorists, you'd um, scatter it with things like drawing pins or something like that, not because they're weak, feeble, little people and would run away when they trod on the drawing pin, um, but because the, they're small, cheap metal things. And they would then completely, um, it's like that um, silver foil jamming radar um, they obscure the reading, but now metal detectors can pick that up. So, yeah, but I mean, the problem for Eddie is that they're expensive. I mean, I think they can be two or three thousand pounds um, and possibly more for a really high grade metal detector. I um, mean, certainly anyone...
1: it was a refrain within Time Team uh, in your previous life. It was always uh, Tony Robinson leaping about and going,
2: the geophys shows. <laughs> and The geophys is really, I mean, as, as they would say, certainly when you're doing magnetometry, it's just a very sophisticated metal detector so the one where they walk about quite quickly and you don't have a thick probe in the ground that is just picking up differences in magnetic readings but that's because things like ditches give a different magnetic reading for reasons I won't get into but uh, so anybody
1: else got direct questions about the content of this I know we could go on for days and days I wanted to ask Renza are you able to do any archaeology around your um, professorial duties are you still doing archaeology now? Actively? Yeah, yeah,
2: no, we're, um, I've got a project at the moment. I mean, I'm not doing quite some much stuff on site myself, but we did dig, did a dig actually near this hoard site that turned up at, um, uh, the university owns a, uh, a sort of estate um, it sort of sounds a bit posh but uh, just near Lincoln about five miles from it and where this hoard turned up we did a dig there with the RAF last summer uh, as a community dig found a fourth century Roman building there um, with nice straight what, bits of nice straight walls so we did that I've also got another project actually which is doing that test bit excavation in the Netherlands Czech Republic and Poland at the moment which just looking at how that works what it can tell us about the past and what it how it works for people um, it's got a bit messed up by COVID this summer but we've had some really good results um, from that. So yeah a bit not uh, not as much on site as as I used to though Um, and certainly this summer I've really missed it whether it's just because it's cumulative or whether because it's just been difficult to get out anyway. I went out and visited in fact uh, the skeleton I showed the slide of that was from a site I visited uh, again just near Lincoln, a big cemetery site from about the I think it was six early seventh century, so probably about 50 hundred years earlier than those coins from Marnie. Um, so that was but it was nice to get outside.
0: I have a question. Um, and this might be an impossible one to answer. I don't know. So, my as a geography nerd, my mind was blown when in the first conference, Chris Perkins, the wonderful geographer, showed that from the first map of Ambridge to the most current and commonly used one, that the river had migrated from one side of the village to the other, which is a you know, geographical you know, phenomenon that he was very concerned about and thought needed greater attention. Would that have affected where these finds have been found? Would the are we, Could there be something in the silt of the river even if it was on such a rapid movement surely it would have picked up things it would move
2: things about what do you think mm, well yeah obviously interesting question <laughs> <laughs> there are very two very different lines i could take to try to answer this one there's the obvious um a slight query about the entire reliability of the consistency between the variant uh, maps um <laughs> the if Rivers, on the whole, those they do move around, but generally over geological periods of time, rather than uh, well. I mean, I think the the maps suggesting perhaps that um, you know they might even change over the last fifty years, but. Um, yeah rivers can move around but generally only because humans have engineered them we haven't heard about anything given that the fuss about the route b bypass um i think if there'd been any major um fluvial engineering going on in ambridge we would have heard about it it's just possible that in the medieval period the river moved around and that um uh, you know, there was a monastic site, so the monks were very into sort of uh, hydraulic engineering and kind of because they wanted water supplies for their sites, and um, uh, it was very fashionable to have things like fish ponds. So some medieval lords would create fish ponds, and you then got you know, have a, you divert a lead to fill your fish pond and uh, create um, uh, you know a second stream doing that. Um, We don't seem to have heard much about that happening. Maybe Eddie's just been very, very, very busy on the quiet, (laughs) removing the river. (laughs) Well, I
0: I think we should try and get some funding to go on this and do a more extensive dig of Ambridge and um, get Chris Perkins in on the action as well. I (laughs) think 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 it would be brilliant. (laughs)
3: Does anybody (laughs) else have a question here?
0: Yeah. Uh, you go, Nicola. No, no, you. Okay. Now I can't find it. Sorry. Go on, Nicola, you do it. I've got waiting room things happening on my screen. Oh, sorry, tower. sorry.
1: Um. And, uh, so, sorry, I was thought it was a question coming in. We're talking about Hadrian's wall now in the chat. Does anybody have a direct?
3: Yeah. yeah. Yes. I <laughs> think yeah. Hello? Just go. yeah. yeah. Just, I just put a question in the chat because I used to live in Lincoln um, in the early 90s oh, and yeah. um, at the top of the West Common in Yarborough Road and we were told that behind our house um, I think below it because it was quite high up um, was a workhouse and people used to talk we were only there for two years because my husband was at college um, but we were told that bones used to turn up in people's oh. gardens I just wondered, it's just occurred to me since you're in Lincoln, you know, is this true? <laughs> Do you know anything about it? Yeah, I know the area you're talking about,
2: certainly. Um, uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Um, you know, it's just outside the Roman town there, or the Roman right. city, um, and that's where cemeteries tend to be. Um, and they've done digging along Newport and found cemeteries up there. So, yeah, I wouldn't be at all surprised.
0: Right,
2: OK. And that, that just to link it back to Ambridge, for people who um, are watching this for the archers, rather than link. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I mean, you know, it's, you know, there, are, there is more, there's so much more archaeology out there than people expect. And it's, I mean, one of the things that surprises me about Ambridge is it doesn't have a local history group. Mm. Because so many villages is somewhere like Ambridge, where there's enough people who are kind of interested and there's enough of those sort of, you know, middle class educated people to who are connected with their place. You know, it's just surprising there hasn't been one set up. And again, that could be a it could be quite a nice thread running through that that they could pick up every now and again. Um, well, I
1: think the suggestion was that it was Jennifer and John Tregor. Now, people do occasionally call Jennifer the historian of the village.
2: But yeah, but uh, it hasn't sustained, has it? I, I no. would love it
0: if somebody came in as a young pretender historian and was challenging Jennifer, and um, yeah, she gets her back up about a lot of things. I can see a lot of hilarity in that storyline. Yeah, I'm
1: more than certain that Jennifer's version is going to be heavily edited and bowdlerized. Yes. <laughs> 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 the marital histories might be a little bit obscured
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah also, and i mean there's all sorts of stuff you get people coming in and found stuff on the internet that they're trying to make work you know you get so much uh, you know you could, i mean there's some you know you could get there's quite a lot of scope for a relatively light-hearted storylines because <laughs> yeah. actually most you know obviously for some of the storylines at the moment of grim but um uh you know on the whole you know people are having feuds about the significance of an anglo-saxon skeleton that's turned up you know it doesn't have quite that level of trauma. It has that interpersonal thing where people yeah, get, right, you, know, yeah. uh, you know, very, uh, you know, aerated about it all, but it is not quite as traumatic to listen to. I think um, that's, and really it, that's I was thinking own, that in this the
1: week, like, sorry, I'm talking over. The, the only thing I was thinking in the week, how defensive and paranoid everybody, well, I mean, the, the, the Brookfield Archers had been about it, because it was all just about treasure hunters and uh, all of that. But you're absolutely right. It could be a really nice healing storyline. Because again, it's sort of much more about community, society, both present and past, doesn't it? I think it's, um, it's a really interesting point. And I think it is partly you know, 2020-itis, that the yeah. sense that other people are just a threat, you know, it's threat and danger, and, and people are gonna take from us and all the rest of it. But clearly, history is much, and archeology span particularly, it can be much more of a playground and much more of, as you said, a festival. Alison, you want Hi. to come in pet? Alison Bourne had a hand Can I up. unmute. Unmute yourself.
3: Uh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I, my question was about the fact that you talked at the beginning, Krenza, about the fact that if this is, um, uh, you know, an Anglo-Saxon uh, coinage, that would actually be quite rare um, because you've only got a few found in the. Well, it depends what, what it is, but it could be quite rare. If it's something that's actually turns out to be something that's actually not as rare and quite common, does it still get counted as treasure, national treasure? Or, or I mean, what actually happens? Because I'm, I'm just thinking, I grew up in Colchester and, you know, Roman coins were being turned up all over the place. You could just buy them in local shops. You could, you know, I've got some Roman coins that I bought as a child. I don't know if that's still allowed, but you know, they were everywhere. They weren't important enough to, to warrant. So so if this if these if these coins have you turn out to be something that is actually not that exciting after all, what then happens? Well, these these ones would be treasure
2: anyway, because they're gold and silver. Right. Okay. So they they there is that you have to be over 10% gold or silver. So they could, I suppose. I, I don't think that is likely to turn out because they, they, if, if the is a low percentage gold, the rest of it's silver, as it were. So uh, I, th- I think that would definitely be treasure anyway. Um, and obviously there's sort of three of them together, um, the skeets. You can get sort of imitation skeets. Um, it, well, you can occasionally get imitation this There's a brilliant one on the Port of Antiquity scheme. They reckon it's about 10 years old. You know, <laughs> they're saying it's just clearly someone trying to make one. I'm trying to think, oh, God, we did a time team reconstruction thing anywhere near that and someone's thrown it away. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the Roman, Roman. I mean, some Roman coins, uh, they have coins called minimuses or minimi, um, which are literally the size of your little fingernail and about as thick. And they are sort of small change and they were so worthless that you had to have a little bag of them to go out and buy a loaf of bread with sort of thing. It sounds like the Weimar Republic. Um, So, you know, you find, and of course, that's the sort of, it's like the half P today, only they're worth a fraction of that. You know, if you drop it, you wouldn't really put a lot of effort into picking it up. Um, Whereas you drop a gold coin, you probably will put quite a lot of effort in trying to find it. But of course, if you're living in a site where you haven't got a stone floor or a wooden floor or a tiled floor, you know, we drop a coin, you can hear it go ting, and you kind of know it's dropped and you know rougher where it's gone. But if it just slips through a hole in your pocket and lands in the mud, you know, you or the, the earth, you know, you just not want to know about it. That it's interesting. People have said what they're using these coins for. Um, and, you know, they're, they're probably not using them to go to the market and buy everyday stuff, mainly because they're fairly locally. Each community would have been fairly self-sufficient. So you don't have much of a market economy. What you do have seems to be barter Say you'd be kind of swapping stuff um, rather than coins we don't find enough coins to suggest Mm. that they're using them in the same way that we do as a medium of exchange and this is a suggestion that they're actually kind of high level elite gift exchange almost so Mm. it's you know i've got a beautiful glass vessel i'm giving that to you and i'm going to give you some coins Uh, you know it's a kind of cementing allegiances sort of type thing Um, yeah
1: it certainly doesn't underpin a market-based economy in the way because you know exactly two coins isn't going to keep a village aflo- afloat if they have to be exchanging <laughs> you know what I mean like so so it might they could be they could have been more like medals rather than coins they yeah, could have been more like yeah. um, I always think that they could be more like um, you know like sort of yeah special sort of ceremonial things rather than in terms of just for exchange
2: yeah you sometimes see them made into jewellery so it's not uncommon to find roman coins that have had holes pierced in them as if they're either being sewn onto clothing or um you know made into jewellery or something so mm-hmm. there's it's, it's quite a sort of they're very into a, adornment and you know that does it when you look at graves there's a suggestion because some graves have an amazing amount of stuff in them and it's like they're putting in stuff into the graves just so that the 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 the, the image of that grave is of that kind of Opulence and they've got all their stuff, whether it's just a mm. couple of brooches or whether it's a huge amount of stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the number of coins you find, it's like, hey, I've got the coin this week, I can go to the shops. <laughs> everyone <Yes. laughs> else for the next six yes. months. <laughs> Who's got the coin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, the fear is with everyone, our shared eyes.
1: <laughs> so the chat is currently going on um, a tangent, a, a very valid tangent. Uh everybody about mm. the lack of actual civic life in Ambridge. and we have that vein of form we have returned to recently um yeah. there's there's, there's two papers in the book about so there's Amy Saunders' piece about ever since they joined the committee. it's been grunge bands and something else bizarre um,
0: wrestlers.
1: and sumo wrestlers, that's right so I, I guess yeah the sort of the lack of community dig is isn't to do the fact that there isn't archaeology, but there isn't the community. Um such, yeah, there isn't a local history group or the kind of whatever to kind of um you know push push the interest. So I I'm starting to cogitate uh, uh, basically a plea to script writers that in their healing after the pandemic, we oh Rosalind Janssen, she's always got great questions. Thank yeah. you, Meg. I missed it. Um Hello, I think this I, is it. We need a community dig led yeah. by you.
2: Um could I just um ask a question? Yeah. Um, So, Carenza, you um, mentioned archaeology courses, and the Archers has obviously presented us with um, studying archaeology as a very gendered experience, i.e., it's women who do archaeology. Um, So, my own experience when I did my undergraduate degree was uh, more mixed, so we did have men on the course. Um, So, I'd just like to know how you react to that. And I would um, I'm uh, uh,
1: it's, uh, tempting to suggest though that the young women coming through in the Ambridge Dig, this is the Carenza effect because Time Team <laughs> that's in that's the that's in that's the nineties must have inspired more women to go into archaeology. Mm-hmm. There we are.
2: Yeah, when did you do your archaeology degree, Rosalind? Oh gosh, that would be dating me, wouldn't it? roughly. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could have done it last year, you know, people well, I, do archaeology. No, 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 it was in the um, 70s and then I actually yeah. um, worked at the Institute of Archaeology. So I sort of taught mainstream archaeologists as well. Yeah, so,
3: yeah, I mean, I did my
2: degree in the 80s and um, yeah, it was sort of 50-50 then, but that yeah. was it. A- and actually the undergraduate body overall was was male dominated. The archaeology degrees do tend to be very female heavy at the moment. It's a recognised pattern. Um, uh, The profession is still, you know, not exclusively men at the top. Certainly most of the people at the top of the profession tend to be male. That's terribly typical, of course. Um, The issue, I think, with women doing is it's not a terribly well-paid profession <laughs> so um you know whether that makes a difference I don't know it's almost it's starting to become like the equivalent of something like history of art which always used to be the girls always did history of art sort of thing um so yeah it does seem to be at the moment I mean in many ways it's great that lots of women are going into it I just hope it um, and and I do occasionally get messages from people saying, oh, oh if, uh, people come up to me at conferences and say, oh, I got into archaeology because of the Time Team. Just mm. makes me feel rather old.
1: We <laughs> <laughs> had a really good question uh, in the chat asking these marvelous coins: what value would they have been at the time, and what would they have bought? It's back to our thing about them being ceremonial, special. You know, is that like a is that like a half million pound coin or like a ten <laughs> p coin?
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't know. And I don't think we know a great deal about that really because we simply don't find, you know, we don't find, we, we don't have accounts or anything. So if you look at the medieval period, you know sort of how many pennies someone would earn for a day's labour sort of thing. Um, how many chickens
1: for each? Um,
2: yeah, yeah, how many chickens could you buy with a threems I suspect that would be one hell of a lot. Um, yes. I think they are, you know, again people aren't doing they're not working in a wage economy so you can't even say it's the equivalent of months wages or a year's wages and of course the um you know the the kind of relative wealth is so stretched out between um you know and again that's the case until you know relatively recently you know you've got what and still is today of course in some ways, but um i mean i don't think you know i think they are they're not your entire fortune, but they're certainly, you know, they're, I don't think they're quite the equivalent of a, um, you know, a Mercedes sort of thing. <laughs> um, but they they might be the equivalent, oh, I don't know, A, uh, you know, a really nice watch or something like that, you know. So
1: I guess for Ambridge then, it's appropriate that they've got two because they can have one for the archers and one for the Aldridges and everybody else can just eat mud. <laughs>
2: yeah that sort of thing yeah (laughs) but but, but there's got to be a Marnie you know there's got to be a descendant Mm. of that brother of the Marnie somewhere who could reappear you know they clearly used to be a family there they could reappear and claim this coin and then you (laughs) can put these coins Jane
1: I mean we had a we had a really interesting um, paper from Catherine Hoskin earlier in the year about the Aunt Laura storyline because obviously Catherine's from New Zealand and Aunt Laura went to New Zealand and you know the, the story about how there was this, and a Catherine are you on do you want to see because she she traced back all this kind of genealogy and I mean you know the Fair Brothers this is shall- the shallow end in fact of the long <laughs> history of Ambridge although it's been done very, done very cleverly this has got to be time for some of the kind of you know the feudal lords of the past must have descendants in the present.
2: Well, you know, you can get some sort of, you know, charter or something, as producer says, somebody has the rights to such and such, and you know, you get this sort of thing. It turns, out, I mean, I remember buying a house once, and somebody saying, "Oh, there's a, the only problem that the solicitors turned up was that you weren't allowed to keep pigs in the back garden." You know, <laughs> that's kind of this had clearly been sort of written in sometime in the 1850s when the house was built or something. Um, and yeah, you get those that you know, those sort of and those sort of things in the past that come out and create really bizarre problems and can create interpersonal problems. So you get someone a Marnie descendant, turns up and demands the coins of Ruth and David you have decided they quite like them after all and but then Jill is sort of Oh my god, yeah.
1: academic archers should put a claim over Marnie's field on the basis of the work you've done. We should claim <laughs> the title. Yes, Cara.
2: But, uh, but I mean, and the community side is interesting as well, because I mean, that's one of the post-COVID things is this move towards hyperlocalism. Uh, you know, that's a very much an emerging thing. A lot of research um, is that people are thrown so much more back at the moment on their local community. So people are working from home, they're spending time in mm. their local place. Um, you know and and actually that whole building up community through something like a community dig or Mm. you know people feeling more connected with the place they live in Mm, instead of just being there overnight they're there more and yeah people then get interested in the past and why does a road have a kink in it like that or why is it that funny little building there you know and that stuff that people you know people are just that you know it's just surprised when stuff turns up but it does have such a lot of potential for you know all sorts of conflicts and picking up ancient things you know you come back to the Grundys and the Gabriels you know we haven't seen a Gabriel for years since we haven't since Walter died out but you know there's a family there to come back um,
1: gosh it makes it making me wonder what the gills have done with their lockdown but that's definitely getting off the off the subject right I think <laughs> um unless there are any more direct questions we um we should bring this bit to a close Karenhen's it was amazing and <laughs> And yes I've got so many ideas including title for Marnies and uh, a community diggers the healing balm the village needs. Um, <laughs> thank you so much and please can you, you give all our love to, to Jane when you fantastic. see her. You I will do
2: I'm seeing her later yeah as, as is Ali yeah thank you. Very okay much. so humans
1: that want to stay on to talk about other matters um, and spoilers yes big claps big